And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. It's Thursday and it's uh, nearing the turn of the new year. So we're going to finish out this year strong because uh, we're going to be diving into Scripture and the Eucharist with uh, convert Brian Topham. And we're going to take a convert's look at John 6. And I I think that's a fantastic way to wind up the year here on Hands-On Apologetics by looking at John 6, thinking about the Eucharist, and also uh, looking at this particular passage through the eyes of a recent convert. So that's going to be a ton of fun. That's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, as always, we're going to do our Finding a Fallacy and also meet the Early Church Fathers segment, as you know, on this show. I want to make it a good show, but I also want to make it a show that's good for you. And so if you're listening to the first segments of pretty much every show we do, um, we're going to do some critical thinking exercises, and we're going to learn something about an early church father. So if you're a veteran to the show, you've been listening to us, you are very well armed in terms of spotting logical fallacies and formal fallacies. And also uh, knowing something about the early church fathers, probably a lot more than the average person out there. So our finding the fallacy for today is, for you Latinist, the argumentum ad populum, otherwise known as the argument to the popular or appeal to the popular. And also our early church father is um, not necessarily an individual. It's a collection of writings known as the Apostolic Constitutions. Uh, which is somewhat influential in the early church. Very strange collection of writings indeed. So we're going to get into that, find out what uh, is the Apostolic Constitutions, where did it come from, what's contained in it, all that good stuff in a few seconds. But first, I want to welcome all of you to the show properly, beginning with our live stream audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome aboard. I also want to welcome all of you listening on radio uh, all over the country and also listening to us on social media, either podcasts and other recorded forms. I want to welcome all of you as well, because we're all part of this thing we call Hands-On Apologetics. It's great to have you with us. It's amazing the scope uh, of the um, the reach that this program has uh, through the world. So we're helping our brothers and sisters across the sea. And also we're helping our brothers and sisters here in the States as well to understand, defend, explain the, sh- the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And it's great to be part of this. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, let's see. Yeah, I should also uh, mention, since it's coming up at the end of December, next month at the end of January, there's the huge Spiritual Warfare Conference coming to you in Covina, California, and uh, if you go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and you click on the banner for the Spiritual Warfare Conference, you'll see, first of all, that it's sold out. And that's no surprise because, uh, man, big-time heavy hitters are going to be speaking there. Of course, the great Jesse Romero 
and Father Ripiger and a whole bunch of other great guys, you know, that are cutting edge in terms of spiritual warfare. Uh, so the live is sold out. You won't be able to go there in person. However, you can still access it uh, as a recording the day after the program. And to get all the details about that, just click on the banner right there on Virgin Most Powerful Radio dot org and you'll get all the deets uh by the way if you have a question for our guest the brian topham you can always give us a call toll free at 888-526-2151 that is 888-526-2151 or if you'd like to send me an email love to hear from you and the email address to send it to is questions at handsonapologetics.com that is the official dojo mailbox and uh, love hearing from you guys. So, uh, again, questions at handsonapologetics.com. I know on the web there's all sorts of different avenues to get a hold of me, but that really is the best way to do it. So uh, please do. Let me know how it's going on, what's going on in your life, whether you're in a dialogue and you need some help. Anything I could do to help, that would be great. Um, yeah, so I think we covered all the bases. Why don't we jump into the Finding the Fallacy segment? which is the argument ad populum. It's argument of theory, uh, which fallaciously uh, the argument, which is based on affirming that something is real because a majority thinks so. Okay, so it's basically everyone believes this, therefore it's true type argument. So it's appeal to a popular belief. Um, this occurs an awful, awful lot. You know, it's... If a million Frenchmen can be wrong, then uh, obviously, you know, a thousand or a hundred uh, social media experts, so-called out there, can be wrong as well. Um, and, and this uh, this fallacy occurs a lot, especially in academia. I think it's really an unspoken fallacy where uh, it, it's difficult, especially if you're a young scholar, to buck a trend or to claim that something that is amazingly popular in the scholarly world may not be well-founded. And so there's a tendency, especially if you're doing research in a particular area, to default to whatever is the popular position uh, if it's outside of the area you're working on. And so what happens is you get this uh, idea of, uh, uh, you know, a majority report and the majority report would be true because so many people, so even so many scholars believe it, which doesn't necessarily mean it's the case. It could be true. But it doesn't necessarily mean just because something is popular that it's necessarily true. And uh, I think we run into this in everyday life a lot. You know, it's it's so easy to just basically say, well, it must be true because how could so many people be misled on a particular issue? And, uh, you know, that's the reason why no popery legends, uh, myths have been circulating and uh, through the centuries. And they kind of have a life of their own. Precisely because of this, because it's it's popular, therefore it's true, even though it might be historically totally and completely baseless. So, uh, you know, whenever you run into this uh, fallacy, you just need to stick a pin in it and just point out the fact that uh, it doesn't matter whether something is uh, held by many people or one by one person. Truth is truth. And ultimately, what it comes down to is arguments and evidence. Um, if the, if um, the only time that would be an exception, of course, would be if you're trying to uh, use testimony, 
Okay, so testimony could be uh, have greater wake weight if there's more testimony in favor of a position, particular position. But then you're not talking about just popular acceptance. You're talking about testimonial witnesses. So that's our early. Uh, that's not our early church father. That's our finding of the fallacy for today. The argument to the popular or argumentum at populum. All right, let's go to meet our early church father for today, who is uh, not a person or an individual, but a collection of writings known as the Apostolic Constitutions, written sometime around A.D. 400. The so-called Apostolic Constitutions, or the Constitutions of the Holy Apostles by Clement, is an interesting work, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, with a curious history. The eighth book, uh, in eight books... It is the largest extent collection of legislative and liturgical material uh, of so early a date. The work pretends to be of apostolic origin, written out and sent around to all the bishops and priests by Clement St. Clement of Rome. Uh, in that respect, it is a forgery of the grosser and more impious sort. Here, the use of Clement's name is not merely a congenial literary device. Uh, it is... Uh, Quite frankly, a deliberate intent to deceive the reader, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers. Um, the work can be divided into three parts, embracing books one through six, seven, and eight. The first part, books one through six, is a revision of the so called Didascalia of the Twelve Apostles or the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, which uh, latter work originated in Syria around uh, AD 200 250. Mostly the Apostolic Constitutions is just simply uh, brings the Dediscalia up to date with more recent uh, legal and liturgical matters. For example, the Dediscalia prescribes fasting in Holy Week, whereas the Constitutions extends it to the Lent of 40 days. Part 2, the whole of Book 7, can be divided into two sections. One section is an enlargement of the paraphrase of the Didache, an Apostolic Church Father, or writing. Uh, section two is a collection of prayers of praise and thanksgiving, uh, instructions on the teaching of catechumen and uh, administrative station of baptism, catalog of the bishops consecrated by the apostles, uh, which list shows a knowledge of the pseudo-Clementine literature and also of Eusebius's church history, a morning, evening, and meal prayers in chapters 47 through 49, Morning prayer in 47 and is a great, uh, the greater doxology, the Gloria of the Roman Mass, and a meal prayer in chapter 49, which is almost verbally identical to the pseudo Athanasian work on virginity. The third and most valuable part of the work is the final book, Book 8. And this has three sections, the first dealing with charisms, the second with ordinations and blessings, and the third with legal prescriptions. The final chapter, 47, constituting what is generally treated as a separate work, uh, but which seems to be the work of the pseudo-Clement, or whoever uh, put together the constitutions. It is the 85th so-called apostolic canons, the 85 second, uh, apostolic canons. Chapter 6 through 15 contained the entire so-called Clementine liturgy, or the oldest extent complete text of the Mass. And that is our early church father for today, which is the Apostolic Constitutions. More to come after the break. We're going to be talking with Brian Topham about John 6. 
stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we're going to talk about the Eucharist, and specifically uh, the famous Bread Life Discourse in John 6, and help us work through this text. We have convert Brian Toppin with us. Brian, by the way, is a recent convert to uh, from Protestantism to Catholicism. He's a proud father who lives in Southern uh, or South Carolina with his wife and two boys. He has a master's in communication from Abilene Christian University and has worked in the past 17 years in the financial industry. He runs an amazingly popular uh, YouTube channel. It's really coming off the ground. It's called Quest for Faith with Brian. So I encourage everybody to go there, check it out. If you like it, subscribe and uh, like the uh, channel. Let's get some uh, exposure for him, where he breaks down the Catholic faith from a newcomer's perspective. And uh, I've watched several videos, really good stuff. And Brian, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thank you. I appreciate you having me back on. Yeah, and uh, well, I appreciate you uh, coming on. You're doing uh, great work on your channel I really appreciate your perspective, and uh, especially with uh, today's topic, which is John 6, which uh, was very important for you personally. Yeah, I mean, this this topic was quite literally the reason I looked at the Catholic faith. Um, it's uh, It just, once you see it, you can't go back from it. And it, it's, I, I kind of laugh, I was telling my wife when, when I was thinking about this, uh, that I still kind of fanboy out during mass, right? When they're, when they're consecrating the host. So I'm like, look what the, it's happening. So, um, <laughs> awesome. yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Because, uh, man, uh, that is, of course, that's the, the mystery of the faith is, uh, Christ's Eucharistic presence that in many ways sets us apart from, uh, many other Protestant, uh, Faiths, of course, you have high church Anglicans, uh, you have Lutherans who may believe in the substantial world presence. But outside of that, um, it's mostly just a kind of symbolic or yep. spiritual presence. Now, from your background, when you grew up, uh, what was the, the view of the Eucharist growing up? We still took it seriously. It was it was only a representation, um, but it was something that you didn't partake unless you've been baptized. Um, and it was, a. I I mean, I even remember actually getting mad at a friend that, uh, came to visit and he, and he took, uh, uh, partaked in the, well, what we didn't call the Eucharist, but the Lord's supper, um, because he wasn't baptized. And I was like, dude, you can't do that. Like, uh, you need to be baptized, be able to do it. So, um, it was definitely something in the Church of Christ that they do take very seriously, but they don't take it that next step to it's the real presence, which would make sense because you need the apostolic succession to be able to do that. But yeah, yeah, it definitely yeah, was that, something serious. Yeah, it it opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? <laughs> because it does. If Christ is really, truly, substantially present in the Eucharist, then. You have to ask yourself, well, how does this happen? You know, by what agency? Uh, then you have problems of, well, is there a priesthood? Is there uh, some sort of succession of ordination? I mean, it really opens up the whole question of the historic church. Yeah, and I think it's really 
it, it's the key. Um, and when you look at when you're looking at the whole book of John, um, I mean, I think it he's laying the groundwork throughout the entire his entire gospel there of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. I mean, it starts off with in First uh, John or uh, John uh, was it chapter one verse twenty nine with John the Baptist saying, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." I mean, that's from the get go and um, I think one, one of the great things to do when you're reading scripture and especially this passage, um, and, and I've heard, I heard Steve Ray say this and it just clicked when he said, you have to put on your Jewish, your Jewish glasses when you're reading this and understand what the Jewish people were, were hearing when they were hearing these words and, and what was going on. Um, which I think because of that, we don't, we miss a lot. Um, yeah. when we're reading the gospel, because we don't understand the, the cultural implications about what, what was actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. So when John the Baptist says, this is the lamb of God that takes away, take away his sins of the world, you know, to us, it's so common and it's almost like, uh, we just flip over things like that. But you're right. When you look at the Jewish context, it's like, Wow, you know what is he saying about Jesus? That he's the Passover Lamb and mm-hmm. takes away the sins of the world. You know, not just Israel. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and and you look at uh, we can get into that after we kind of go through things. But mm-hmm. you look at what happened in the Passover every year, and how I think I was reading like over a million uh, animals were were sacrificed and blood running through the streets of Jerusalem. Like it was a real tangible thing and to finish the sacrifice you would eat it right you would you would raise your lamb bring it into your home and then you would take it up to be to to be sacrificed and then you would bring it home to eat eat during the passover meal so it it was a very real thing to say something like that to a jew in the first century yeah yeah absolutely yeah and uh you know, today, actually, because of the Eucharist, we don't have animal sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the temple's gone, and, and something like that is so foreign, to, especially here in America, in this modern context. Like, when was the last time you were over a friend and ha- ate a sacrifice lamb for Passover? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's and, and even most religions today uh, don't have sacrifices, Right. They, they don't talk about sacrificing animals, which was a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, so, yeah, it's it. It was a when, when you read through John, John six, it was groundbreaking and shocking. And uh, and, and th- that's a reason everybody was freaking out when they heard this. And I, I think one of the great things when you, when you read it. And you realize that these people he was talking to are the same people that he he fed the day before with the 5,000. And I was trying to map it out. And I think they walked somewhere around nine miles if they walked around the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus mm-hmm. because they were so impressed by that. And Jesus immediately starts talking about, You've, you're only here because I fed you. You're not here for your spiritual your spiritual meal. You're only here because of the bread that you were satisfied and and just starts going into really talking about the the how um Moses br- brought the bread from heaven or you know God brought the bread from heaven I am that bread and this really started hitting hitting a nerve with with these Jews that were following him and even his disciples 
Yeah. So as a Protestant, I'm sure you've read John 6, you know, at least a few times during, uh, you know, during, if not more, you know, during your lifetime. Was there a point where, uh, you know, there was a reading of John 6 that was different from all the other times you've read the text? Or uh, what, what called your attention to this text, even before we jump into the text itself? Yeah, uh, I think the what really pulled me in, uh, it was, I think I had mentioned it before, but my wife was doing, she was doing a study on John six, uh, during, during, um, uh, Lent that year. And she had gotten to that passage and she's the one that, that showed me a video that by father Mike Schmitz talking about it. Okay. And that, that blew my mind because growing up and, and thinking about it now, when we talk about John six growing up, we never talk about the second half of John six. Right. Like mm. completely focused on the feeding of the 5000, completely focused on walking on water and and Peter going out on the water with Jesus and taking his eyes off Christ and falling in. That stuff's covered all the time in Sunday school and in growing up. But mm-hmm. it's kind of like you pass. O- no pun intended. Pass over. Uh, <laughs> The, the second half of John six. And I think the, the, the out that a lot of people use uh, to get through to say, Oh, well, we don't really need to worry about that is it, what is it? Six sixty three John six or verse 63 in John six, when he's talking about the, uh, the flesh doesn't understand. This is, a, I'm talking a spirit. Yeah. I'm like, see, he was, it was a metaphor. He, but no, that's not what he was talking about. It was definitely, he was being, there is no metaphor there at all. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so uh, so you you go to John six, and you know that's a great. Uh, I, in fact, I love how you set this up because this is something that I think a lot of Catholics fail to do when they're talking about John six. Why did Jesus do the multiplication of loaves, right? And and there's all sorts of Eucharistic imagery, you know, that he took the bread, he broke it, gave it to them. You know, same kind of wording you get in the Last Supper. Yep. And then they walked nine miles or so, oh, we just get more bread. And that that kind of sets the whole stage for the Bread of Life discourse. So I, th- I think that's a really important introduction for anyone who is going to walk through this chapter with their uh, friend, non-Catholic friend is to, to show the context of John 6 and how that fits in with what Jesus says. Right. And, and I think it's important to point out uh when he starts, when he's when he begins talking, and he's talking about the bread of life, and whoever eats this bread will uh, will will never go hungry, and they all and everybody goes, oh, I want that bread, give me that bread, and he goes, I am the bread of life, and then they're like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus, <laughs> like you're talking crazy, and they start arguing with amongst themselves and with him mm-hmm. over, wait. You're, you're the son of Joseph. We know your mother, Mary. Like, how can you offer yourself? Um, and, and they really start pushing back hard on him. And he never backs down from that or goes, well, guys, it's just a metaphor. You know, like when I said I, I'm the vine, I, I'm the doorway, like that's what I'm talking about. He, he never backs off this, I'm the bread of life. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, um, will have eternal life. Like he, he, he stays on point and has plenty of opportunities to, if he, that's not what he's trying to say, correct it. And he sticks to it. 
And I think that that's that's the part that got me when I read it that way. Um, when I realized, oh, wait, no, he's he he's he's playing for keeps in, in this passage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All through the Gospels, uh, whenever people don't understand uh, what Jesus says, he corrects them right away. And there's many, many examples, including bread, you know, where he says, uh, beware the leaven of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they thought uh, it was literal, but he's like, no, beware the teaching. You know, he corrects them immediately. Yep. But in John 6, you have people who are disputing, you know, they're they're pushing back on what he's saying. Jesus never backs down. He actually kind of doubles down on what he says. He does. And even the the language that John uses in, in there, uh, it's... Like you even get right in, like down to verse 52, I want to say, um, when you read it in the Greek. And I think I mentioned this last time I was on, but he uses the the normal term for eating in Greek, which is, I think it's, uh, correct me on the pronunciation, but fuego, or is it, yeah. it's P-H-A-G-O. Mm-hmm. And that's when he's first saying, eat my, eat my flesh and eat uh, and drink uh, and drink my blood. He's using that. But then right down just after that, when they push back on him again, in verse 54 or 55, he, tra- he changes it to trago, which is to gnaw on, the chew, which is typically used for animals eating something. So, Yeah, very good. I hear the music coming up. We'll hit pause right there. Talking with Brian Topman about uh, John 6. Stay tuned, everybody. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Brian Toppin, who's the uh, host of Quest for Faith with Brian on YouTube. And please check out this channel. Uh, lots of great stuff. Uh, subscribe, like, you know, let's blow up the channel. So uh, get his uh, program some exposure. And we're talking about a convert's look at John 6, the Bread of Life discourse. And, uh, yeah, some great stuff to, before the break, uh, setting up. Jesus is saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he even, he changes the Greek words where there is a normal uh, word, you know, fago, that could just mean, it could be symbolic. It's very uh, common, you know, way of saying eating. Then he changes it to trogo, where uh, literally gnaw down, munch upon, chew uh, within that. So he intensifies his uh, language, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And... And I th- that's when I think everybody in the crowd there probably went, oh, uh, he's being serious. And then I love it in uh, he turns around to the other to his disciples and what does he ask? Oh, yeah. He turns around. This is in verse um, 61. And he says, do you take offense to this? Right. Like the crowd starting to leave and murmur against him. And he turns to his disciples and goes, do you take offense to this? And, and then that's when he's, and he doesn't correct it. He just says, yeah, okay. So what's your problem with this? And he lets his, the disciples leave and he turns to the 12 there at the end and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to abandon me? And Peter's, uh, the leader there stands up and says, no, we believe that you are the the Holy one of God and you have eternal life. And, um, and, and it's amazing that he's been spending because this is a year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe this is a year before the the Last Supper and his crucifixion. So this is right before the Passover, a year before. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
he's been working that hard for two years with his ministry. And over this teaching, he's okay with letting people leave because it's that serious to him. Yeah, not not only just the crowd, but his own disciples as well. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the people he's been training, been teaching, and and they're like, uh, you know, who can stomach this? You know, yeah. And, and Jesus doesn't back down. He just says, "Well, you know what? That's that's how it is. You know, if you if you don't like it, basically, don't let the door hit you on the way out." Right? Exactly. Yeah, and I think for me as a convert, so. My, my next step in this was, okay, did the disciples believe this, right? And, and is there other scripture that kind of backs this up? And I, and I think it's really easy to look in um, like Matthew 26 in the Last Supper when, he's, when he says, uh, this, take this and eat it. This is my, this is my body. Uh, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood uh, of, of the, uh, the new eternal covenant, I believe is what it says. I'm probably slightly misquoting that. Um, but it's no, there, there's no, this represents my body. This represents my blood. And they're in Jerusalem in the upper room, probably still smelling. The air is full of the sacrifices that are going on on the altar. Like this is the, like for me, it's like, this is a, a very physical encounter of realizing what's happening during the last supper. And I'm sure, you know, going back to the beginning of, of, of John, they were they were there when he went to be baptized by John the Baptist. The the twelve were, and they heard John say, uh, John the Baptist say, "Behold the Lamb of God," and then all of these things are culminating and clicking in their minds while Jesus is going through this and teaching them uh, about the Eucharist and what what they need to do moving forward. Um, and so I just uh, you you read that and then you read First um, Corinthians chapter eleven where uh, Paul is just berating them on misuse of the Eucharist. And to me, it goes against that thought that it was a meal in the first century. They, they got together. It was like a family meal in a house. And Paul specifically goes, this isn't a meal. Don't you have your own home to go to and eat and drink? And, and then later on, I think it's in uh, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 27, he goes into talking about how you can you can damage your soul if you partake in the Eucharist incorrectly. So examine yourself before you go to the Lord because it is, you're, you're uh, profaning the, the body and blood of Christ. Hmm. So it, it, they were taking it literal. They're, that's the language they use throughout the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Really good points. Cause I mean, if it's just a symbol, right. <laughs> it, it certainly seems like that's an awful lot of hyperbole. Because it could just be a meal if it's a symbol, you know how how can uh, not receiving a symbol profane the body and blood of Christ, right? right? But if but if it truly is Him, then that makes all the sense in the world, you know. A hundred percent. And I think uh, to me, in today after joining the Catholic Church and going through this process, and then realize hearing these statistics that. 70% of Catholics, that one that everyone throws out, and I know that study's maybe like eight years old now, that don't believe in the, the real presence of the Eucharist, blows my mind. And I feel like this this is the cornerstone of everything you do as a Catholic, right? This is why you bow, uh, why you kneel and genuflect going into the pew, because the host is in the tabernacle, 
this is why when you cross when you when you're crossing the tabernacle you turn and bow to it um everything that we do in mass the the culmination of the mass is because of the eucharist it's not this it's not the sermon it's not the homily right that's that's a side note it's you're there because of the real presence and you're there to worship yeah that is mind-blowing uh you know uh for uh, of all people catholics because uh uh, you know, if if uh, that belief isn't solid in Catholicism, you know, it's not going to be solid outside the church, um, especially when you have all these different theologies and so on. Um, you know, going back to John 6, uh, I, how do Protestants understand this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood? If, it, if he isn't talking about some sort of literal consumption, you know, uh, under as true food and true drink under a sacrament, uh, what does eating flesh and drinking blood mean? The the best I can describe it is I think a lot of times they give it that pass of, of like like we were talking earlier, that it's just a metaphor. Um, that, yeah, a metaphor for what? Uh, that, yeah, we should we should partake in, in communion every Sunday or some some every Sunday that that's another thing that drives me nuts is when churches don't do it every Sunday, even if you don't believe it's the real presence anyways. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think they're trying. I, I think a lot of it is trying so hard to be not Catholic. Um, and that, that was the, the, the start of it 500 years ago. And, and I think I was just reading, uh, something earlier that, uh, when Martin Luther broke off, he still believed in the real presence, mm-hmm. but it wasn't 10 years after that when you started having other churches pop up and say, it's not the real presence, it's something different, and then that ended up going into Lutheran also. So it was so quickly just dissolved in, and then there was this huge wave of movement to be anything anti-Catholic. And and it kind of shocks me because it's like they'll t- Protestants will talk about um, how is the blood of Christ that washes your sins in baptism and that you need to be baptized to be saved? Well, if God can save you from, or become a Christian from being saved by being baptized and receive the Holy Spirit from water, why can't he do this to bread and wine? Like we're, you're shortchanging it. And I feel like I feel like that's where it stems from is the Ref- Reformation and, and that's, push to not be Catholic is I think where it really comes from. And we've kind of lost why we believe that in the first place as Protestants look at it, because it's been so long at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, that's from a church of Christ perspective. Uh, possibly Lutherans would sign on to that Anglicans about baptismal regeneration and mm-hmm. the necessity for baptism. And of course that outside of those groups, uh, you know, it's baptistic, where it's just, even baptism's just a sign. So mm-hmm. everything kind of gets folded under faith, right? It's yeah. it's faith in Christ that does it. It's not the water. It's faith in Christ. It's not the, the Eucharist or any other sacrament, right? It, everything is faith. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know, it goes back to that faith alone topic, right? Um, yeah. Because if it's faith alone, then none of this other stuff necessarily matters that much. And I think that's kind of where this falls into with John 6 mm-hmm. um, and why growing up we focused on the first half and never yeah. really studied the second half in, in, in church. Because I really—I've yeah. d- 
No, I've never heard a sermon in a Protestant church on, on the end of John six ever Yeah. in four in 38 years of going to Protestant churches. <laughs> I don't yeah. ever remember that. So right. it, it's like, it's one of those scriptures, sections of scriptures. It's like, and he walked on water. And then in John seven, it's just, let's jump it. Cause it's hard to defend this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing it could possibly mean is it's some strange, extreme metaphor for faith or believing in Jesus. But, you know, it's hard to say that the Jews left him and even his own disciples left him because he was saying that you have to believe in him. I mean, Jesus throughout his public ministry was preaching a necessity to believe in him, right? Necessity yeah. for faith. Why would John 6 be any different? You know, there's obviously something deeper going on here than just using a very strange metaphor for believing and coming to Christ. Oh, 100%. Uh, yeah, I agree with you completely on that. I mean, it's it, it's the it's the sign of the new covenant, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it and covenants were usually sealed by a sacrifice. Um and so it it just makes so much sense when you look at that, when you read uh, the Old Testament and how were their sins forgiven before Christ? Oh, they would sacrifice a lamb. Uh, it, it's just all culturally fits perfectly with uh, Judaism. And it, it's a perfect extension of, of the continuation of faith, the salvation history. I just think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, there's so much on the table I'd love to dive into, um, but I can hear the music coming up, so let's just hit pause right there. We are chatting with Brian Topham, the host of Quest for Faith with Brian on YouTube. Check it out, and more to come on the other side of the break. Listen to Hands on Apologetics. Now, back to Hands on Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands on Apologetics. We are chatting with Brian Topham. talking about John 6, and we've gone through an awful lot, and actually there's a lot on the table. So, Brian, I'll let you, I'll let you pick it up where you want to uh, go with this text, and I'll just follow you from there. Yeah, for sure. And I think really, because we've been talking about how he doubles down, and I kind of want to I want to read verse 53 through, uh, let's see, that is 55, when he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And remember, that's when he says, gnaw on the chew to devour the flesh of the Son of Man. Um, and then continuing in verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. I, I, you can't get any clearer than that. And then I think it, it's great if you just jump over to, to the beginning of, of chapter 7, and it says, after this, so all that happened, where he lays down the, 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 the Eucharist and says, yeah, you, you, I am going to be the sacrificial lamb. You will eat and drink my blood. And it says, and starting on verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went up to, uh, in Galilee, or after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Hmm. 
He made them so mad he had to flee because they were going to kill him. And he never tried to correct what he was saying. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. You know, I never never looked at John uh, 7-1 before. That's kind of cool. Right. So, uh, uh, so there was ramifications to what he just said. I mean, yeah. terrible ramifications. Right. And, and it's the first time, too, I, I love right at the end there, it talks about... Uh, he he mentions Judas, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Right there in verse seventy, Jesus answered them, "Did I not?" When, after, this is after uh, Peter said, "Yeah, we're sticking with you. Like you, we believe you. We're sticking with you." And then he says, "Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is the devil." And so I, I feel like that was maybe Judas at that point wasn't on board. He's like, "I'm going to stick with you, but I I, I don't know about that." And it starts laying that groundwork for, for, for the the crucifixion and the betrayal uh, of Judas. But I just think that that's amazing that right there in the next verse, he has to flee for his life. He can't stay in Galilee. He has to, or he can't stay in uh, Judea. He has to go up to Galilee um, because he made them so mad by that by that statement and was like, "Yeah, that's that's why I'm here. I'm the bread from heaven. I've come down." So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah ominous word. So it, it sets an action also, you know, this that Judas, uh, that's where he uh, departs from him, right? Because although mm-hmm. I chose you, 12 is not one of you a devil. He was referring to Judas, the son of uh, Simon the Iscariot. And, and it was he who was to betray him, one of the 12. So right there, you have the falling away of Judas that he didn't even have the integrity to leave, Judas, you know, he right. still remains with Jesus, even though he didn't accept his teaching. And then Jesus has to move about in Galilee because Judea now uh, that they're Jews seeking out to kill him because of his teaching. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Yeah, and, I, and it's, and I always like, I love finding this stuff out, and I felt like it made Jesus so much more real to me learning this because. He really was a revolution, revolutionary. Hmm. Uh, He really was saying things and doing things in a way that hadn't been done before. He really was pushing that envelope, and and he wasn't afraid. And I feel like the fact that, um, I mean, when it was his time, he walked into Jerusalem, right to 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 drink of the fourth cup. I'm actually listening to. to the fourth cup right now from um oh yeah scott hahn scott hahn yeah i'm i'm halfway through it um but yeah, great set, I love audible <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah hey, catholic resources terry barber's ministry you know he's he's uh the founder of virgin most powerful radio so you're mm-hmm. at the right place so uh, hopefully yep. terry you're listening to that we're plugging your products but the, the fourth cup by scott hahn is amazing series where he ties in the, the liturgy or the Haggadah of the uh, Passover a- into the Eucharist and, and pulls out the, uh, some meaning behind how Jesus interrupts that liturgy during the Last Supper. Uh, fantastic set. Right. Because I guess, yeah, there was four cups that were drank during Passover, or there still is today. Mm-hmm. And he stops before the fourth cup 
to go pray in Gethsemane. Okay, I can never say that right. <laughs> uh, and that's when he's arrested. And then the fourth cup is drank right before he dies on the cross when they hand him the the vinegar water or the vinegar wine. And he drinks it and says, it is finished. That's the end of the Passover meal. The last supper is when he dies on the cross because he is the sacrificial lamb and it fulfills it. And I feel like even further, the the next time you see Jesus and the the road to Emmaus and how he's walking with them and walking through all the scriptures and how it leads up to, yeah, no, it makes sense. I know you're sad, but this was supposed to happen. Look at what the prophets say and walking through all this. And then as soon as he breaks the bread, they recognize him and he disappears. Mm. And it's just, it's amazing. I just, I don't know. It was definitely the, the, that, that realization that what God does for us and, and that we get to partake and, and literally consume the body and blood of Christ to make us, to try and make us more holy, right? Like we need all the help we can get. Uh, yeah. I, at least I do. So, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Yeah. So, uh, they didn't recognize them even, even with all the scriptures, right? They don't recognize Jesus walking with them, but it wasn't until he, he breaks the bread that that is where they recognize Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's a, such a powerful passage, such a powerful passage. And I think, you know, as apologists, we often, we don't use things like that. But, um, you know, how do you explain it otherwise? I mean, as a Bible Christian, I'm not sure how a non-Catholic would explain that. They they probably wouldn't see anything of importance in it. Right. And I think my fear of when you're looking at Scripture, um, and, and you see this in the Catholic Church with with the uh, Catholic ca- uh, cafeteria Catholics, but I think there's mm-hmm. caf- cafeteria Christians in general where, well, that verse lines up with what I think, but this one, eh, I'm okay not, not talking about that one. And I, I feel like the, the further we've gone down in Scripture with new translations and things, that it softens a lot of that language to make it not as meaningful and it's easy to skip over those, and and there, and, and I feel like there's passages that you can use when you're talking with Protestants, um, because you can't go with um, you can't you you can't argue tradition, right? There, mm-hmm. with most, there is no tradition like that. That doesn't mean anything. Um, but if you can work through the passages, and hey, have you looked at it like this before? Um, and pulling up like the road to Emmaus and talking about the Passover and the fourth cup and, and the sacrificial lamb in, 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 uh, John one and going through, uh, the second half of John six, um, you're, it's all in scripture. It's all there. And I think a lot of times it's just, we have shades over our eyes when we're looking at some of this stuff, um, because, Looking at something like this makes you question everything you've been you've brought up to believe if you're a Protestant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If if this is right, then where am I wrong? Like, what else do I not understand? Um, And I thought I had a firm understanding of everything until this slapped me in the face. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, I was going to say this. This is part of your own personal experience that once you saw this, 
it was kind of like the the curtains pulled back and it's like okay well what else am i missing you know if i miss this in scripture yeah and, yeah and i think i think as catholics when you're when you're talking to your protestant brother brothers and sisters you really need to to spend time in scripture and read the Bible. And I, and I think things like uh, Bible in a year uh, with father Mike Schmitz is going on right now. Um, it's a great resource and Catholics need to start uh, re-energizing themselves with scripture. And so you can bring out passages like this and understanding it to be able to talk about your faith. And, and I think John six is, is such a cornerstone of, of everything we are as Catholics um yeah it's the mass that we are there for the mass we are there for the sacrifice that's why we have an altar we don't have a a a table it's an altar um because we are participating in the sacrifice of jesus christ um in the mystery of faith and how god actually does that that we don't quite under we don't understand it but but he says he does it and so that's the faith part right um so i think that that's that's key yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it changes everything. And, and if you don't believe me, uh, just uh, watch a Protestant service where they just believe the Eucharist is a memorial. You don't see kneelers. You don't see genuflections. You don't see vestments. You don't see an altar, you know, like you do in a Catholic church or incense or, you know, right. uh, priest. Or It's like everything, uh, once you cross that line and you affirm the real presence, like everything changes. Right. Right. And I used to get frustrated in the Methodist faith before. So we were at a Methodist church for about six years uh, before uh, we we started this journey down to the Catholic church. And they would literally say they would do communion once a month, which, again, drove me crazy. But they would do it once a month. But then they would say anyone can come up. Like there's no like baptized, not baptized. This is the, this is Christ's uh, table. You can come up and, and partake in the in the in the supper, right? Like it, there's no there's no reverence for it. Yeah, it's just a thing that we do to just remember that Christ died for us. Um, and it's like no, it is way more than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we only have a little bit of time left. I want to talk a little bit about your channel. Tell us about what's going on uh, with Quest for Faith. Yeah, so right now I've got a few videos uh, in the pipe. One, uh, I'm actually going to be talking about confession and kind of walking through what that's like, but also a call to have priests do more confessions than just once or twice a week because I find that frustrating yeah. uh, myself. But uh, then I'm also working on something on uh, limbo, um, which was a fascinating topic, the, or hard, a hard learning for me personally. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. All right, that's Brian Topham. By the way, check out his YouTube channel, which is Quest for Faith with Brian. And uh, great stuff. And, man, I can't believe the hour's already flown. Uh, coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk, coming at you with the Jerry and Justin Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll see you again next year. Bye-bye, everyone.